The sermon this morning, as I mentioned before, is based on Psalm 19, verse 14. That's on page 4 in your bulletin. It's the very last verse of that psalm. So if you'd like to follow along there, I think it would be helpful for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. We can boil down the influences in each of our lives into three basic categories. The first influence in your life is the media that you consume. So it might be the books that you read on your Amazon Kindle, or it might be the things that you watch on Netflix or on television. It's for this reason that when yet another person goes on a shooting rampage that that the talking heads start to say, well, Maybe the influence of our teens watching graphic violence on television is to blame. Because these things that we take in on television, they influence us, whether we like it or not. The second influence that we have in our lives is the people that surround us. So it's the New Yorkers that we live next to. It's the family and friends that surround us. So again, whether we like it or not, once you lived in New York City and you've lived here for a while, you're a different person. You're not the same person that came to New York five years, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Because New York culturally will influence what you believe and think. And by the way, it's for this reason that it is so important to gather together as a Christian church. Why? Because Christians desperately need the influence of other Christians in their lives. So we gather weekly, if not even twice a week. Wouldn't that be nice? The third influence in your life that is very powerful is you. We spend a lot of time, I think, consuming Media, maybe even a lot of time watching TV or reading books. We spend time, maybe even a lot of time with family and friends and other New Yorkers that surround us. But far and away, the person with whom you spend the most time is you. And you talk to yourself. You tell things to your own heart. Counselors talk about it this way. They they talk about self-talk. What is is a self-talk that you are saying to yourself? We're going to talk about it in a different way, the way that the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks about it in this way. It's the meditation of your heart. And that's going to influence you. That's going to impact you spiritually, emotionally, and even physically. So you need to answer these questions for yourself. Most often, where are my thoughts? What is the meditation of my heart really like? And that's going to influence how you think and even the very health of your soul. The, this last Monday night, I had the opportunity, sometimes it's a rare luxury for me, to sit down and have dinner with my family. And sitting across the table with my lovely, patient wife, and my kids were sitting there off to the side. 
And we talked a lot. I think I did most of the talking. And, and, and I told her the things that were on my heart. And that particular day, it was a member of Grace of God who was in critical condition in the hospital. A couple members' fathers were, were dying here in this congregation and out now with the Lord. So I was thinking about these things. I had watched also a sermon online that day, and I was pretty upset because it was almost completely vacant of the gospel. So I was a little frustrated with that. And these are the things that I told my wife. Maybe I even had her pray about them with me. And then I asked her, not Taylor, I asked her, well, what are you thinking about? And then this little voice sitting right next to me, it sounds like a bell, it's very cute, said this. Even though I hadn't addressed her, she said, Daddy, I'm thinking about penguins and polar bears. And, and right in that moment, I began to laugh, mostly out of embarrassment, because did you notice what the meditation of my heart was like? It was weighed down. It was a little bit anxious. And it was a person who felt like the weight of the world was on his shoulders. And then there's this little girl who is there contemplating the beauty of God's creation. I'm thinking about penguins and polar bears, she said. What do you think goes wrong for adults? That all of a sudden life becomes so heavy. That life becomes so weighty. You know, you know, little kids, they don't struggle with these anxieties, these depressions, and these thoughts that we do. And I think it's because they are full of trust, aren't they? They're full of trust because they know that, that mom and dad, they got it. They're going to provide. Everything's going to be okay. But, but adults, all of a sudden, when we take on the mantle of providing, we begin to tell our hearts and even meditate on a gigantic lie. You know what that lie is? We tell ourselves, it's all on me. If I don't do it, who's going to do it? If I don't take care of the kids, if I don't put food on the table, who's going to do it? And that is a gigantic lie. And do you see the distress and the damage that it causes in your life. Spiritually, it causes us to take God and shove him in a corner. Because we rely on ourselves. We're self-sufficient, not God-reliant. Emotionally, we, it causes us to become anxious and distressed and maybe even depressed. Because... We know that we're actually not that strong in the end. And physically, this might seem as a surprise, but it does ca cause damage physically. Well, how, you say? Well, because it causes stress. And what are, the, what are the physical things of stress? Elevated heart rate, wrinkles, your hair starts to fall out. See, you see the damage that believing Lies and meditating on lies can cause. But the worst part about it is this. Do you think such a meditation of a, an adult heart is acceptable for thriving in life? No. 
maybe for surviving, but not for thriving. Do you think such a meditation of an adult heart is acceptable to God? Do you think that you can take the meditation of your heart that is weighed down and heavy and the weight of the world is on your shoulders and then offer it as a thank offering to God in praise for what he has done for you? Do you think that you can take a body that is racked with stress and anxiety and say, God, here it is. This is what I have to offer you. And he's, he's going to say, oh, praise the Lord. No, right? This is not an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord because, first of all, God is too holy. And second of all, he has given you too much grace and too many gifts for us to live and act that way. And so the psalmist here in Psalm 19, he wants to give to you and to really all of us and to me a brand new meditation of the heart. Listen to what David writes here. He says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. So here in this little prayer, David calls attention to the meditation of the heart. So, so it's clear that it's not just yoga instructors who meditate. God, God calls on Christians too to meditate, have a meditation of the heart. So, so what is what is Christian meditation look like? What does it even mean to meditate? Well, picture. This word is used in the Bible in the following ways. Picture a dove sitting underneath a tree in the heat of the day in the shade, enjoying that shade, and begin to understand what meditation is. Picture for a second a lion with a bone in his mouth, and he is chewing and gnawing on that bone. And he's growling contentedly. And you'll begin to understand meditation. Picture for a second your dog at home, and you give him a treat, and he hums contentedly there on the ground because he has something lovely and beautiful to him. And then picture David. It seems like he's sitting there in the morning in Psalm 19, on his balcony in Jerusalem, and he is watching the sun rise, and he's turning over and over in his mind the greatness of God and his creation, and then you'll begin to understand the meditation of the heart. Lutherans call it, it's a Latin phrase, meditatio. So Lutherans are not against meditation, we are for it. But let's be clear, There is a God-pleasing meditation, and there's an unacceptable meditation of the heart. We've already looked at one. What is a one unacceptable meditation of the heart? Well, it's being weighed down with the anxieties and and the heaviness of life. That is an unacceptable meditation of the heart. We would all agree about that. But we could go one step further. Christian meditation is not a clearing of the mind. It's not a repeating of a mantra over and over again. It's not sitting in a certain pose for an extended period of time. Christian meditation directs our thoughts externally. 
See, you see who David addresses as he sits there and meditates and chews on and growls on? This is what he says. He directs his heart in this way. He says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So like doves, Christians coo as they consider the greatness of God. Like lions, they growl over the food of the gospel. Like dogs, they enjoy a tasty treat as they consider God's word. And like David, they run over and over in the mind the greatness of God and the purity of his word. So let's just meditate, let's rest our hearts like David did in this for just a second, that the fact that the Lord is our rock. Now that doesn't mean that he actually is a rock, metaphorically speaking, right? What is a rock? Well, it's, it's strong. A rock is strong. It, it, it can be a foundation, for example. You can, you can build a house on a rock while, while a very poor foundation is sand, but, but a rock, it is strong. You can build your life on it. A rock is, is also a good hiding place. You see, if there's a giant boulder and you're sitting there on a mountain and a, and a storm comes up or maybe an avalanche comes down the mountain, what are you going to do? You're going to hide under the rock. Because whatever is blowing, whatever external circumstances are happening, you can go and you can go to that hiding place and you're going to be okay. A rock is also a good place for protection. If your enemy, for example, has a bow and arrow and it's the sharpest arrow that you have ever seen and he shoots it at you and you go hide behind rock it's going to just bounce off and you're going to be okay the Lord is our rock he is our foundation he is our hiding place he is our protection David says he is our strength David says this too. He says, the Lord is our Redeemer. So in the Hebrew, the word is a goel. In the Old Testament, it's an interesting thing to study that word goel. A goel always intervened in an impossible situation where the person actually couldn't help themselves, not even a little bit. So consider the work of a goel in, in slavery. When an Israelite was in slavery, they couldn't buy their own way out. That was impossible. So a goel had to go and pay for them to get them out of slavery. Their redeemer, their kinsman redeemer. In, in another situation in the Old Testament, when a man died, obviously it was impossible for him to carry out his fi- family line. So who had to intervene? Well, the goel did. The goel had to provide for the family line. A goel would also intervene in the case of a murder. Now, when, when, when an Israelite was murdered, they could not seek justice for themselves, could they? They're dead. They're in an impossible situation. So the goel of blood 
had to intervene and seek justice for them. See, Goyles, they always intervene in an impossible situation. The Lord is our Goel. Could you have saved yourself from death? Could you resurrect yourself? No. So the Lord, He went into the grave for you, the Lord Jesus, and He conquered death for you by walking right back out. Could you have saved yourself from your own sin? Could you have made a payment large enough? No. So Jesus went to the cross for you. He intervened in your impossible situation. And you know what? He continues to be your goal. So that means if you're in an impossible situation, where can you turn? To the goal. The Redeemer. Because that's what God does. The Apostle Paul said this, Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So here the Apostle Paul too, he recognizes the importance of a God-pleasing meditation of the heart. So it's David, it's Paul, it's Luther. They are all emphasizing in your life the importance of the meditation of the heart. And I can't think of anything more noble, more right, or more true than the greatness of God. The fact that He is your rock, your hiding place, your protection, and the fact that He is your goal who intervenes in your impossible situations. So meditate on that. And such meditation leads to health. Such a meditation of the heart, first of all, leads to spiritual health because you will know and you will believe that our Savior is God. Such a meditation of the heart also leads to better emotional health. Because you will know that the, unex- the, the external circumstances of your life all of a sudden will not blow you here and there because you will know where to hide. And you will know where to go when you are in an impossible situation. But also physically. This meditation of the heart leads to better health physically. Perhaps less hair will fall out and your, your body will be less stressed out, won't it? And this pleases God. This is acceptable to Him. See, a a wrong meditation of the heart, an unacceptable meditation of the heart, it leads to making our problems giant. It leads to making our problems almost insurmountable because that's all we can think about. But a right meditation of the heart does what? It makes God great. It makes God awesome. And it makes God say, I care about you and I will intervene. And so what happens to your problems in comparison? God, they're small. And they're also manageable, aren't they? This is what this sermon series is about. This is just the beginning. We're going to be looking at lies, exposing them for what they are, and replacing them with the truth so that your heart can rest on God, your rock, 
and your Redeemer. Amen.